Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Sunny skies. Welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment. These days, I'm still receiving death threats. I'm still receiving, you know, a significant amount of hate mail and things like that. But I feel protected. That conversation with Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Kahn Cullors will talk about misconceptions about the movement and why she's adapting her New York Times bestseller, When They Call You a Terrorist, to a young adult reader version. But first this, Georgia Supreme Court Chief Justice Harold Melton says the court's in order. He plans to sign an order lifting the suspension of jury trials this Saturday. Now, Georgia courts will be permitted to hold jury trials if if they've done some things like reconfigure courtroom seating and installing plexiglass dividers and ventilation systems. Mask and social distancing will also be required. Because it takes some time to assemble juries, officials say it could take another month or more before jury trials officially resume. And that leads us into our daily update on the coronavirus here in Georgia. The latest figures from the Georgia Department of Public Health indicate the number of COVID-19 cases confirmed each day has remained steady for more than a week. Now, to be exact, 326,142 COVID-19 cases have been confirmed here in the state. And then there's this, the percentage of diagnostic tests that return positive results. Well, that also hasn't moved that much in the past week. In total, 29,308 have been hospitalized. Of those, 5,439 were ICU admissions. And while the pandemic here in Georgia has slowed considerably since the summer peak, many key metrics are far above where they were before Governor Brian Kemp issued a shelter-in-place order in the spring. So now here in Georgia, in total, 7,259 deaths have been recorded since March. And as always, we bring this information based on the State Department of Public Health. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. The phrasing has become global. These words that first appeared as a hashtag on Twitter. And now those words are a movement, an organization, a rallying call for racial and social justice. It's also been criticized, vilified, and called a terrorist organization. Black Lives Matter. For Patrice Con Colors and Asha Bandele, they could probably write a lot more than what they have individually and together, including the 2018 release of When They Call You a Terrorist, a story of Black Lives Matter and the power to change the world. It will become a New York best time seller. Well, it's now being adapted in the, into a young adult audience. And joining me now to talk more about this release is Patrice Con Colors. She's just more than a co-founder of Black Lives Matter. She's an artist. She's an organizer. She's freedom fighter from Los Angeles, she says. 
and she's also a performance artist and Fulbright scholar. Patrice Khan Colors, good to talk to you again. This is our, what, third time in conversation? This is our third time in conversation. It's so good to talk to you. It's so good to hear your voice. So grateful for you. Two years ago on a visit to Atlanta when we were in conversation at the Carter Center, and you talked about what life had been like, what life had developed into for you with Black Lives Matter. And I remember when you spoke of death threats and you talked about the mental toll. And I want to start with that because I want to talk about how you're doing now, you know, from that first time when Black Lives Matter first appeared across Twitter and everything that it's evolved into. How are you doing? You know, I've learned so much in the last seven years, and I have learned how much uh, support I need in moments like this, when there's a moment of uprising and many of us are being called to be more visible and, um, you know, stand and rise in the front lines. And so uh, these days, I'm still receiving death threats. I'm still receiving you know, a significant amount of hate mail and things like that. Um, But I feel protected and Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like I have a really solid, strong team. And there's more people who are rooting for us than there are people who are trying to undermine us, demonize us um, and call for our death. We also talked about self-care when you're an activist, when you're trying to do this work, you talked about struggling that. How are you doing on that front? Oh my goodness. You're going to be so proud of me. I'm doing so much better. It's a daily, you know, it's a daily practice Mm -hmm. to take care of yourself and to, um, you know, really ensure that, that my health is the number one priority. I'm, in therapy um i'm looking into doing yoga i'm not the biggest fan of uh yoga practice so i'm really looking into like a a new you know physical health practice um and i've been going at chiropractor went back to chiropractor once they opened up have a lot of you know chronic pain so i i feel like i'm i'm doing some solid work to keep Mm -hmm. myself healthy not just for the world, but for myself. So I have a good quality of life. Through your lens, Patrice, what has been the biggest or the most, through your lens, damaging untruth about Black Lives Matter that's still being disseminated? Oh man, Um, that we're trying to destroy the country. I think that's the most damaging because Basically, what we've seen the right and white supremacists do is create a narrative that Black Lives Matter, the organization in particular, because we have to remember Black Lives Matter shares the same name as the organization. So if you've seen on the media, what they're doing is, you know, we believe, you know, you can believe in the movement and what it stands for, but don't don't support the organization that's the way the right is trying to shape it because they know we have such strong support um and so i've been really you know wanting to to push people to understand that the movement and the organization let me say that differently that the organization supports the movement Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. There's no way you can have a movement without organizations. Let's think about the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. SCLC, which was Dr. Martin Luther King's organization, was a power player of that movement. SNCC, power player of that movement. So we can't disconnect organizations from movements and we have to challenge the misinformation, disinformation, especially the talking point that we are trying to destroy the country. Are you all anti-police? I'm going to say it. I'm going to respond in this way. We are not anti-safety or anti-accountability. We don't believe the current structure of policing actually gets us closer to safety. We think the current structure of policing doesn't inter- it doesn't prevent crime. It only intervenes on it. And we know for a fact that Black people suffer greatly at the hands of police. So, of course, they don't keep us safe. So I will say we are anti the current police structure, but that does not mean that we don't believe in safety or or accountability. In a year, and what a year it's been, giants of the civil rights movement passing. Now we're in the midst of this modern day movement. We've had conversations before about this generation of of social activists. But what do you notice about this generation now in this moment? Because the outrage and outcry is still all too familiar from what John Lewis, Congressman John Lewis, C.T. Vivian, you know, all those folks were still fighting for. But what's different with this generation of social activists? Um... I don't know if there's a difference. I think every generation has a crew of activists and and especially young people who decide to take to the streets, to, who decide that their constitutional right of protesting is the necessary move to get us closer to freedom. And so I don't want to separate, you know, this generation from 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 my generation or the last generation. I will say that, um, you know, I'll say that that we have social media mm-hmm. and that really does change the nature of protest and the nature of uh, getting your voice heard because it really, social media democratizes who's able to talk. Um, we're not relying on traditional media to have a conversation about our lives and I think, you know, for the younger generation who's younger than me, uh, younger millennials and and Gen Zers, they have lived through Black Lives Matter, the Women's March, March for Our Lives, um, the Me Too movement. And so they are well versed in movement and mm-hmm. organizing and activism. It's It's really a part of their makeup. And that wasn't my... That wasn't true for me. When I was 16, 17, I was politicized. I was learning about all these things like racism and sexism, homophobia, but that wasn't the whole world. Mm-hmm. The whole world wasn't <laughs> in an uprising and challenging social norms. So this generation gets to grow up and challenge everything that that was taught that was normal. They get to challenge that and that's so powerful. And they get to create a new vision 
and, and a new imagination around how we move forward. Is that also part of the origin behind the idea to adapt when they call you a terrorist into a young adult version? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, the minute we wrote the adult version of the book, we knew we wanted to adapt it into a YA book. We knew that younger folks were going to need to take this book and have it as a tool for their own development. I was a 16 year old activist. I read everything I could get my hands on. Every single book, Audre Lorde, Bell Hooks, Toni Morrison. Mm -hmm. I was in it, Maya Angelou. I needed to read every poem written by black people, every novel, every memoir. You know, I needed that for my own, you know, my own development. And so I wanted to create a book that also gave young people more access to me. I can't, I can't sit with every single one Mm -hmm. and gave them more access to how activism and organizing can work for them. In fact, throughout the book, the reader, I don't want to give too much away. The reader is asked questions. For example, how have you experienced loss in your life? How has the heartache of loss changed you? How have you rebounded from loss? Why are these self-reflecting questions so important for the reader in in this version? Mm, you know, every chapter is jam-packed with so much. Every chapter sort of goes into, you know, the history of policing, mm-hmm. the history of a divested community, the history of a family trying to be present for, you know, this moment. Um, uh, the moments that they're living in in the 80s and 90s, you know, this book really does try to paint a picture of what it felt like, what it was like to live under police occupation and providing reader questions for each chapter just gives people time to reflect Mm -hmm. and think about their own lives. And, you know, some of the readers are going to be like, oh my God, this is what I've lived. And some of the readers are going to think, are going to be like, I've never heard about any of these things in my entire life because of their power and privilege. Are some of these questions that uh, a young Patrice con colors couldn't answer or could answer at that same age that this book is intended for, you think? Yeah, absolutely. I would have loved to have a book with reader questions. Like I think about, you know, Elaine Brown's Taste of Power mm-hmm. or um, Asada Shakur's book, like having reader questions and having just an intentional YA presence in those books, even though I read them as a young adult, um, I would have, they would have gone a long way for me. I remember reading uh when and where I entered the impact of black women in America and uh, thinking about, you know, what questions could I have answered upon reading that book? Um, pretty fascinating. Pretty interesting when you try to come up with, the, with what you think you would have uh, responded with. Um, you know, <laughs> did you seek the critique of some young folks and say, look, this is what I'm, this is what we're coming out with now. And, you know, young folks, they're very candid and honest. Did you seek some input from them? Yeah, um, absolutely. I have um, some some young 
young Gen Zers in my life who I adore um, and, you know, who who read the, the adult version. A lot of young people have mm-hmm. without the actual, um, you know, reader questions or the images or the other enhancement I, I made to the book. And one of the things that folks wanted were pictures. Man, I tell you, you are so cute with your little pigtails. <laughs> The pigtails. I don't know where they came from, but we all had them, right? <laughs> every single black girl. Tell the truth. Did you get your hair pressed? Oh, every single two weeks until I decided to shave my head when I was 17 years old and my mom lost it. Really? Yes. Did she retire to hot comb from stove? Oh, my goodness. I would. I feel like. I don't think, is there a picture in there of me get my hair pressed? Because I should have put it in there. Um, no, but I know. We had, a, we, had a, a, we had a hairdresser who would come over every two weeks and do all three of our hair. I have a little sister, my mom, and, and, and I. And she would sit in the kitchen with the hot comb on the stove. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know that I'm not going to, if I ever have a child who wants to get their hair pressed, I will never subject, subject them to this practice because it was it's literally scarring because i don't want to i don't want to put my mom out there like that but it is like it's how many times scarring. did that hot comb get too close to your scalp hold your ear you like look it's woman hot. you have a hot comb to the back of my neck you talking about hold your ear <laughs> every two weeks and i just remember i and i hated getting my hair done i'm tender-headed and I just remember be- becoming politicized, reading, you know, books from Bell Hooks and so many other folks and realizing this isn't for me. This doesn't work. I don't like how I feel. Like, mm-hmm. what about my natural? I first started wearing my natural ha- hair in high school mm. before it was cool to wear your natural ha- hair. And my hairdresser, I remember saying to her, I'm not getting my hair pressed anymore. I want you to work on my natural hair. And she really like helped me and figure that out. And then I, uh, and then I shaved my head. I first cut it really short. I just cut it with some scissors and some tabletop scissors. Um, And then I shaved it one day. I went to a barbershop and I shaved it bald. (laughs) How important are the images though? Because it, it helps the reader some more insight into you you can read the words on the page but then you look at the pictures there's something really important about being able to see a person in their childhood as they're talking about it being able to see what is um important um what was important to them being able to get parts of their lives through a picture a picture is so powerful and 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 speaks so so profoundly so i i thought it was really important to share that patrice what's next for you i know you're involved in a lot Um, what's the next chapter for you like you know y'all are gonna y'all are gonna find out in the next couple weeks um that i'm going to be entering more intimately into the TV film space. And I'm excited to um, have a new medium to share stories with the world, stories about organizers and black folks and brown folks and 
the work of activists, there hasn't been enough narrative, full narrative of people who are on the front lines, who are activists, who are organizers, who are advocates. And so, you know, folks will see that there's an exciting, some exciting new ventures in the TV film space for me. So we'll find out in the next couple of weeks. You don't want to give, drop some knowledge, drop a, can't, some breaking Can't tell news. you yet. <laughs> can't tell you yet. It's called When They Call You a Terrorist, A Story of Black Lives Matter and the Power to Change the World, now adapted for YA young adult readers from Patrice Khan Colors, co-founder of Black Lives Matter, and so much more. Patrice, as always, thank you for taking the time. Good conversation. Oh, thank you so much. I know. I feel like we're friends now, so we get to just giggle and laugh about a bunch of things. Well, I don't know how our mothers and aunts are going to feel about the segment of us getting our hair pressed. We might not be invited <laughs> to the next family gathering. <laughs> Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. From Fortune 500 companies all the way down to mom and pop shops, they're all dealing with the impact of COVID-19. And we know research suggests that minority-owned businesses are being hit the hardest. And now there's a new effort to help small minority and women-owned businesses during this global health crisis. Take a listen to this. Truth Financial Corp., as we look at, you know, we provided a lot of investments from our foundation as a result of pandemic. And one of the things that kept bubbling to the surface was the need to support small businesses. And small businesses, as we know, are a cornerstone of our community. A cornerstone of our community. Now, that's Lynette Bell, president of the Truest Foundation, talking about the foundation's mission to help small businesses during this pandemic. And the foundation recently donated $40 million to create Corner Square Community Capital. It's a new national nonprofit fund that will support selected community developed financial institutions. We also know them as CDFIs, and that will help small business owners sustain and advance their business. But there's a lot more we need to know. So joining me now to talk about all this and how the program will work is Patrick Woody. He's president of the NC Rural Center, as Corner Square is a subsidiary of that. And Martina Edwards, chief of strategic partnerships at Access to Capital for Entrepreneurs, also known as ACE. They've been on this program so many times. I have to send everyone over there a shirt or a mug. Patrick and Martina, thanks for taking the time. Patrick, I'll get you a mug, too. Don't worry, buddy. That sounds great, Rose. Thank <laughs> Good you. morning. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be back. All right. You know, when we've had these conversations before about how can small businesses sustain, get through the pandemic. But I heard a report just earlier this week on Marketplace here on NPR that, look, a lot of these small businesses, if they haven't closed, they're going to close and they won't come back. It's going to be really hard. So, Martina, I'll start with you. The moment that we're in with this pandemic, it's extraordinary. But what fears do you have about the plight of the small business person during all this? Yeah, we are, you know, very concerned. Um, I think, you know, nationally, a report came out, like you said, that 40 percent of black businesses had closed. And uh, in the state of Georgia alone, uh, the Office of uh, 
SBA of Advocacy says that 43% of the private workforce is employed by small businesses, right? So there are a lot of kinks in the armor, and we know that it's really important to try to undergird uh, the small businesses. And we've been focusing on relief, recover, recovery, and reinvention. So uh, for ACE has been around for 20 years. We're the small, or the largest, excuse me, small business-focused CDFI in the state of Georgia, and we have really. Um, been focused on giving folks a chance that others can't or won't, right, through capital coaching and connections. Mm -hmm. And this opportunity with Truist um, has been, is phenomenal in terms of a partnership because it's going to allow us to continue to propel that forward in terms of giving those folks uh, the capital that they need, but also the business advisory to start pivoting uh, their businesses. And we'll dig into that a little bit more. But Patrick, what are your assessment on the plight of the small businesses during all of this? We've been working statewide um, in North Carolina with a partnership of eight CDFIs to deliver relief to, to businesses effect, impacted by the pandemic. Um, and it's everybody. And But we are particularly concerned about businesses that are um, owned by minorities, women, uh, people of color, um, and in our low to moderate income census tracts across our state and across the, the entire Southeast. Um, no question but what they've been impacted um, time will tell how many can bounce back and reinvent mm -hmm. and re mm -hmm. reimagine themselves and come back i think some will um, some won't so it, the timing has never been more important for us to really focus attention on these small businesses that are owned by women by uh, african-american small business owners latino small business owners and really um, make sure that they're being served from a capital standpoint, coaching, connection. Those three C's are incredibly important uh, to the work that ACE does and CDFIs across the Southeast. Well, Patrick, let's look at some specific industries. We know that the restaurant industry, obviously the landscape of that is changing. But through your assessment, are there any other particular businesses as it relates to small businesses, maybe small boutiques that you all are extremely worried about as well? Uh, yeah, we, we've seen as we've worked with businesses of all types uh, across um, um, our state that it's particularly retail. Um, it is um, travel and tourism related businesses, accommodations, restaurants, uh, those types of businesses, any kind of service industry, which requires, uh, you know, one on one contact with uh, a lot of people. Those are the, you know, over 60% of the demand for our COVID response program in North Carolina have been to businesses in those sectors. Hmm. Martina, you want to add anything to that about what specific industries that are concerning for you all? Absolutely. I, I would agree with Patrick. Um, there are a lot of hard hit sectors, um, tourism, um, the, the retail industry, hospitality in particular, you know, event spaces aren't really able to do much. Restaurants and childcare um, have faced uh, extraordinary challenges as um, some of those temporary layoffs or furloughs and closures are, are turning permanent. Um, I know that for us, uh, ACE has been focused on standing in the gap. Uh, to ensure that those small businesses have, you know, equitable resources to survive, recover, and thrive. Um, I would say that, you know, this partnership is allowing us to continue to move our work forward. And in 2020 alone, 
we have done seen so much demand. Uh, we've seen four, done 400% more affordable loans this year than we did in 2019 for the year. Uh, and that's helped to supply about 15 and a half million uh, in business loans to businesses that many were on the brink. Uh, and then there are others, right, that were, uh, that have, I would say, COVID defensive businesses. So they needed additional capital to help um, propel them forward and catalyze that growth, but in line with our ethos, right, 80% of that capital has actually gone to uh, entrepreneurs of color and uh, women, which, as was mentioned earlier, uh, have always kind of been disproportionately impacted with these barriers to capital. Before we dig into, we're going to dig into this new foundation, but now, given what you all have just said, now it's more than ever, it's important to have these public and private partnerships for the small business owners. And Martina, if you could just take that and take it further from me, because without these type of strategic partnerships, then what resources would there be for small business owners? You're absolutely right. I mean, at this point in time, we have to come together. Small businesses, I've always said, uh, create collective prosperity, right? It's not just the, the business owner. It's our 20th year anniversary, and our theme has been the ripple effect, invest in one impact many. And so if you think about helping someone to realize their dream of, of opening a business, they're then able to hire employees. Those employees get income that helps their families. And we know that a financially stable home is really important for thriving children. Uh, and so as we look at what's going on with the uh, cascading health crisis and you know the ballooning economic downturn, it is really impacting those families, um, and they're really in danger, right? So it's important for us to have this partnership to amplify and complement the work that we have already been doing, uh, trying to help these businesses shift. A, a great example is of uh, a woman named Amelia uh, Guild who had a transportation service uh, working with getting uh, students home or to different places after school. Of course, in, in March, her business came to a halt, uh, but for a, our partnership with a, a, a separate uh, grant from, from Truist that was really focused on business preservation, we were able to provide her with three months of debt payment relief, right? So that she could focus on reinventing herself, mm -hmm. uh, pivoting her strategy, getting a diversity supplier certification. And now she is a preferred vendor for Atlanta child care services. So mm -hmm. she's able to get she's able to get a new contract and help essential workers with their kids. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so that's critical in terms of what we do when we couple that capital with business advisory. That's that's just a, a, you know, an example of how this is effective and it will continue to support businesses. Um, Ninety two percent of them, based on surveys, are having to pivot their business mm -hmm. model. Patrick, what are the importance of public and private partnerships to help small business owners? Um, and that's really the, the whole reason behind the creation of Corner Square Community Capital. And with the support of Truist Bank, and we will be eternally grateful for the investment Truist is making in CDFIs in, in the Southeast United States, uh, actually a 17-state region. We're starting a program that we intend to be evergreen that will last in perpetuity and support the excellent work of organizations like ACE and, and the the, I love the profile, the personal story that Martina uh, just told about one of their uh, customers, because at the end of the day, that is why we do what we do. That's what it's all about. Um, and we perfected over um, three decades of, of working uh, just within the borders of our own state, 
uh, programs that really help leverage and build the capacity of uh, uh, of CDFIs. And that's our goal here is really to go out across um, a very broad footprint and really invest in the long term capacity building of the CDFI industry, because we know CDFIs are going to disproportionately be better positioned and better able and to target uh, their work and their assistance people of color to women-owned businesses, mm-hmm. incredibly important, something we care deeply about. We're going to be able to support more startups and help more startups be successful in the long run uh, through this program and by really helping to invest in the long-term capacity of CDFIs to help Ace and Martina and her crew do more uh, to meet the, the needs of those small business owners and their footprint. So let's take this tier by tier. So we have the Corner Square Community Capital, which Truist is funding with the $40 million. And then you all come in and distribute that money to the CDFIs like ACE. The way it'll actually work is we, uh, we've we announced so far six um, CDFIs that will be part, that are partners um, in this Corner Square effort, ACE being one of them. Um, Corner Square will purchase 25% participations in the loans that ACE makes. Uh, that does a couple of things. It, it helps um, take away some of the risk that ACE um, is doing by, by uh, it takes on by doing this type of lending. So it helps de-risk their total portfolio. It also allows them to take 25% of their capital and plow it back into more loans to more businesses in, in the area that they serve. And I want to be clear, this will be in the form of a loan and not a grant for these small businesses. It'll be a loan. Yeah, it, it's us really co-investing with these CDFIs. We're purchasing 25% of the loans that they do um, and leveraging their capital to do more. Um, and the thing we like about this model, and I think the thing Truist, that really attracted Truist, is that it is evergreen. This, mm-hmm. is, this is work we can continue to do as the years unfold and as we go forward and as we grow uh, the capacity of the CDFI industry to, to meet the needs of more small business owners. So, Martina, let's get over to what you all are going to be doing at ACE, which, again, stands for Access to Capital for Entrepreneurs. With this money, it's more than just providing the loan for the small business owner, but you also mentioned giving them resources to either help reimagine or reinvent their business or also helping them with some other initiative. What are some of the options here? Absolutely. Um, basically, we're providing access to capital, but also we have known that the the, the critical formula has been um, coupling that with technical advisory, business advisory services. So um, ACE is going to go out and continue to do what we have been doing uh, for the past 20 years, you know, around our mission of helping to move capital to underserved people and places. Um, But our vision is also around, you know, closing wealth gaps um, and and trying to support these, um, lessen these economic disparities that are out there. I think that this funding from uh, Truist is actually not only timely, as um, Patrick mentioned, but I love the intentionality around it. And we've been really intentional about focusing on racially and ethnically diverse groups, as well as women, to try to create some um, gender and and equity around access to capital for for these businesses. In the Southeast, um, there are about a little over a thousand CDFIs in the nation, but the Southeast actually has the fewest amount of CDFIs anywhere Mm. in the country. So I think um, in terms of this being evergreen as a way to 
um, strengthen the CDFI industry. We serve to me as the ancillary uh, components of the banking industry. We are we're a needed component and uh, we have a vested interest in really moving things forward. And if we can strengthen small businesses uh, who employ so many Georgians, then we will actually help to strengthen our um, Georgia's economy as well. Uh, so we're excited about continuing to move forward with that work. And someone listening probably wondering, well, do you already have to be involved with ACE? I'm a small business owner. I'm in Brookhaven. I love this whole project, but I have never worked with you all. What are the chances that they could get in on action, so to speak? Right. Well, you know, we we serve 68 counties, um, all of the metro area in North Georgia. Um, So as long as you're a part of our service area, this is really helping to um, we've been doing a lot of emergency loans. We did uh, paycheck protection loans after round one when so many small businesses and solo entrepreneurs in particular were really shut out of that process. And this is allowing us to get back to uh, opening up our doors, you know, being open for business on a greater scale, because as as was mentioned, uh, Truist, this fund will help to share in the risk um, of, of these small businesses. So yes, people can can come and uh, just like anything else, we'll evaluate their strategies and what they're trying to do. And uh, the credit team will, will do their work around that. If I could just add real quickly, sure. uh, we're, we're really excited about the fact that the way this program model works, it will be supporting the lending, not only the current lending that ACE is doing, but the future lending that ACE is going to be doing. Um, and that's the really exciting thing, I think. As we wrap up, and Patrick, I'll start with you. If not for this type of program, you all talked about the importance of public-private partnerships and the importance of having resources for small business owners. But with this resource, with folks having access to capital, the outcomes, let's get to the positive outcomes here. What are you hoping comes out of this? Mark Martina said something that was very important, and that is that the Southeast tends to lag the rest of the country in the strength of our CDFI industry. What I think is incredibly important is this program will invest in building the greater capacity of these CDFIs. What we know, and particularly coming out of this pandemic, CDFIs are going to be more important than they have ever been to small business owners and people hoping to start a small business. You know, many businesses, uh, as they start in that startup mode, they can't go to a bank to borrow money through a traditional banking situation. It requires a third party uh, capital access resource that really are our CDFIs. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what excites me is we're setting ourselves up to grow this industry at a time when this industry has never been more important to the small business landscape of, of the Southeast. Martina, I'll give you the last word. Thank you. Um, you know, I would just say as, as our nation is really facing a barrage of um, factors from social unrest to um, health uncertainty, um, you know, institutionalized and, and systemic um, barriers and, and policies that have really um, disenfranchised um, minority groups and women. Um, we are just excited to be uh, able to use this as a lever to continue to um, amplify the work that we do. And from an outcomes perspective, we will continue to de- deploy capital that is going to support the businesses. And I think at the end of the day, that's what we're most excited about. There has never been a time in our 20 year history where we have felt like the work that we're doing is more important than it is today. Hmm. The Truist Foundation donating $40 million 
to create Corner Square Community Capital. That's a new national nonprofit fund that will support selected community development financial institutions. They call them CDFIs. ACE is one of those, which is Access to Capital for Entrepreneurs. I've been speaking with Patrick Woody, president of the North Carolina Rural Center, as Corner Square is a subsidiary of that, and Martina Edwards, chief of strategic partnerships at ACE. Thank you both for taking the time. Thank you both for being able to help small business owners here in Georgia. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. We know the COVID-19 pandemic has led so many of us, millions of us, to work from home. But this has also some unintended consequences. Experts in this area say the more and more we're all online conducting business or learning, this can lead to a rise in cyber attacks. Last week, the U.S. Treasury Department issued two warnings against cybercrime. And these warnings were issued on the first day of National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Now, Atlanta, of course, has its own experiences with cyber attacks, even prior to the pandemic. It's one of several cities where local governments, school systems have been targeted and disabled by hackers in the past few years. So we always ask this question, what can be done to prevent this? And we usually get the same answer. You really can't prevent it. You just have to know how to manage it and maybe try to prevent it. Well, here, the Georgia Institute of Technology, Georgia Tech, recently started an entire school dedicated to answering this question and a lot more. Georgia Tech has plans to launch the School of Cybersecurity and Privacy and is led by Interim Chair Richard DeMillo. Professor, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Hi, Rose. Thank you. You know, I appreciate this is a very important topic. Even before this pandemic, here's what I had read were the major top cybersecurity threats that organizations were going to face in 2020. Cloud vulnerability, AI-enhanced cyber threats, something called AI fuzzing, machine learning poisoning, smart contract hacking, social engineering attacks, deep fake. I know maybe two of those based on the terms, but someone listening says, wow, that's a lot. Um, How far have we come in this nation through your lens and being able to, I'm not going to say stop, because you told me once before you cannot stop these cyber attacks. You have to be able to manage them and then be able to work through some of them. How far has this nation come? So that's exactly right, Rose. There's no no point in in saying we're going to get over um, uh, the risks that we have from from digital technology. And, And I think you framed it exactly right. So so as we as a society have moved um, to transform our lives digitally, and we're doing it right now in the middle of a pandemic, um, you know, we're going to be met with challenges. And, and some of the challenges have to do with the fact that, that, that we have assets that are, are floating around the network. We have computers that, that monitor our, our bank accounts. We, um, um, we uh, uh, conduct business. Uh, on online, and there's always someone that wants to profit uh, mm-hmm. from that. So, so the list the list of vulnerabilities that you mentioned kind of makes me think of a Walmart. So, you, when you when you walk in when you walk into Target or, or a Walmart, you see all these shelves filled with products, uh, and and that's the way the uh, um, that's the way the online world is too. There are there are folks out there that go to essentially retail websites uh, to download software packages that allow them to 
to um, uh, invade your systems, to invade your, your computers. Hmm. Um, sometimes it's on a big scale, a national scale. Uh, sometimes it's on a small scale, the scale of an ind individual. Um, but but we have to adapt to that. Just the, the, sa the same way we, we adapt to all the other um, risks uh, in life these days, we have to be aware, we have to understand enough about what we're doing to conduct ourselves safely. So based on everything that we've just said so far, and we've scared a lot of people because that's what we tend to do when you have these type of <laughs> segments, these incidents, though, seem to indicate, all right, there's a growing need for a, a workforce that's trained, we're not going to say at preventing, but dealing with these cyber attacks. And I imagine that's what's led to the founding of this new school at Georgia Tech. Yeah, it, 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 it really is. I mean, we, we, we built on um, on 20 years of investment uh, in, in cybersecurity, going all the way back to the first Sam Nunn forum, um, when we started talking about online banking in the middle, middle 90s, mm -hmm. uh, to today, when we have cloud computing and all the things that, that we didn't really even dream of back then. Um, so Georgia Tech has, has, built up, has built up a base of expertise um, that's, that's really kind of unrivaled uh, in the in the industry. In fact, we just were ranked uh, in undergraduate uh, programs by U.S. News and World Report. Not that we chase those kinds of, of, of rankings, mm -hmm. but it's really nice when, when, when someone says, well, all that investment that you've made has really paid off for us. Now, there's actually a shortage of folks in this area trained in cybersecurity. There's a 2019 cybersecurity workforce study that found that the U.S. workforce is facing, and this number just, it blew my mind, facing a shortage of more than 498,000 workers in this area. Yeah, so this is one of the rationales for, for forming the school. Um, uh, we know that, that, the, that the workforce has shifted uh, over the last 10 years, uh, and, and what used to be a niche area of computer engineering or computer science or maybe something that a lawyer or a public policy person would study uh, in their spare time uh, has turned into a career path. And so so we're seeing students at all ages, high school students coming for first year, um, people with degrees coming back for professional um, education, even the public that wants continuing uh, uh, education and, and awareness training, uh, coming back to us with career paths that are specifically aimed at, at cybersecurity. And our challenge, I think, is to figure out how to blend that kind of education, which is a non-standard kind of education, uh, into, into the traditional experience that you would get uh, with a Georgia Tech, Georgia Tech mm -hmm. degree. Uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna do that by having, by having a, a very innovative school that spans all of Georgia Tech, reflects the institutional commitment that Georgia Tech has, has made to this uh, and has, has the intellectual diversity, I think, to meet that challenge. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Richard DeMillo. He currently serves as the interim chair of Georgia Tech's new School of Cybersecurity and Privacy. And Professor, someone listening is saying, so will someone be able to get a degree in cybersecurity and privacy? Absolutely, absolutely. So, so, so one of the things that, that we will do uh, is figure out how to weave uh, cybersecurity and privacy and safety uh, into a lot of curricula at Georgia Tech. Uh, so engineers design design things. They design uh, manufacturing systems and they have supply chains and the supply chains are vulnerable to attack. Uh, and, and so when you think about what does it take to have a supply chain be secure, it has to be a supply chain with integrity, something that someone can't sneak 
uh, a foreign chip or, or a listening device into a computer that's not supposed to have one. Um, and, and those kinds of problems, I think, are the things that are going to attract people to this aspect of, of, uh, of engineering and computer science at, at Georgia Tech. And, and, and we'll, we'll see this, uh, I think, essentially right away because, because we have a backlog of students since the announcement was made two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. We have a backlog of students that have said, how do I get into the program? How do I get a, a degree? Undergraduate wow. degree, sometimes it's a minor, sometimes it's, it's professional education and certification. Wow. Well, let me ask you this then. With that interest and then going back to that number I read about the shortage of workers in this industry, what about your st your faculty and staff? Where will you recruit them uh, from? Well, or do you have enough right there on campus to get started? We, we, we have we have we have a, a critical mass of, of faculty and research staff um, between the academic side of Georgia Tech and the and the Georgia Tech Research Institute, which does um, which does sponsored research. Um, to get this program going, but but to be honest, we need we need the Atlanta area to to step up. So so Atlanta has become a, a hub uh, of innovation in cybersecurity, uh, and we plan on building on that. We plan on involving uh, industrial partners uh, and government uh, decision makers in the way that we design the program. They will teach um, uh, when called on to to, um, uh, to teach in the in the program. And we're going to monitor how well our graduates do once they once they leave Georgia Tech, uh, and feed that back to the curriculum designers so we can continue to update the programs. Professor, is there another school of cybersecurity and privacy at another institution that you all are borrowing or looking at their their curriculum that you're going to implement over at Tech? So we're we're going to we're going to kind of blend together a lot of what I think are are, are good ideas. You you see. Um, you see bits and pieces of this vision uh, at other institutions. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, in, in Augusta, uh, next to Fort Gordon, the, 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 the cyber, cyber school has done a really good job at interacting uh, with, their, with their clients at Fort Gordon. Uh, and, and, and we have uh, experience uh, from 20 years ago when I was, when I was a dean at, at Georgia Tech in blending different interdisciplinary programs into a single unified coherent uh, undergraduate uh, program. So we're going to take ideas like that and put them together so that the student gets what we think is a unique experience. Now, I got to ask you, Professor, will voting and election security be part of this school? Ah, you bring, bring up my favorite, <laughs> my favorite. I'm topic. just wondering, there might be some concerns. So, so, so we will, we will, uh, uh, we will take the, the, the charge of a public university to, to engage in public dialogue very seriously. And, and, and part of what we will do um, uh, and and you know, we've, we've had this conversation in the past. Um, part of what, what we'll do uh, is, um, uh, is raise awareness across all kinds of industries, voting and, and democratic processes being, um, being one of them. Uh, but not because, to get back to where we started this, not because we think there's any silver bullet um, that's going to fix these problems, but, but, but because the awareness of the public as to what risks are, are uh, going to be exposed by incorporating technology uh, into these processes is something that, that deserves public discussion. By the way, Professor, for you and our listeners, speaking of security, on tomorrow's program, a conversation with former CIA Director John Brennan, who, of course, will know knows a whole lot about all of that. So um, maybe we give yeah. Get him to come in and be a guest lecturer or something. I don't know. Uh, yes, absolutely. Listen, as we talk about the importance of this 
new school of cybersecurity and privacy. And you've already said that there's a lot of interest. Are you also going to make sure you it can be as diverse as, as possible in terms of not only just the students, but the, but the faculty as well? Yes, we have built into the plans for this for this school, um, maybe the most ambitious, diverse um, um, faculty and and, um, uh, and and training force possible all the way all the way from uh, uh, from programs that we use to uh, um, to get high school kids uh, into uh, into Georgia Tech um, courses mm-hmm. and, and training pathways early to um, um, to the, the the centers like the Constellation Center, which which specifically aims uh, at, at bringing underrepresented minorities into mm-hmm. uh, into into Georgia Tech. We 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 are, are currently the largest producer um, of, of, of minority uh, engineers and and computer scientists in the in the country, and and we plan on building on that. Atlanta is a great platform to, to do this. I mean, there are so there are so many wonderful institutions in the in the, in the metro area. That doing something stovepipe just for the, the North Avenue campus uh, is less appealing to us than broadening out and, and and pulling as many voices into the into the discussion as possible. You all have launched. What's next? When will students start taking classes and start being able to sign up rather to take classes? Well, they're taking they're taking classes right now. Oh, they're already they're in it right now. We're, we're, we're yeah. Well, so we're 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 um, uh, kind of moving. Um, Moving the parts around as the as the boat is sailing, and uh, um, part of my my job is to take all of these all of these dozens of of um, uh, researchers and, and and professors who have an interest in cybersecurity, and figuring out uh, how we can how we can shift them into the program and into the school uh, in a way that that doesn't cause a lot of disruption for the classes that are currently going on. And finally, we'll end with you. Currently, you have the tag of interim chair. I imagine you'd like to see that be permanent. Uh, I'm, so I'm I, I'm at the I'm at the other end of my career, Rose. So so uh, my 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 job is to is to get the uh, get the school launched uh, and get it on on the right track into uh, to recruit a, a young um, a permanent chair who can who can take this school for the next twenty years. Nobody's really at the ever at the end of their career, Professor. I, I know, I know. I, my, my wife keeps telling me, telling me that. When, when are we going to retire? Um, not anytime soon, apparently. All right. Richard DeMillo, Interim Chair of Georgia Tech's New School of Cybersecurity and Privacy, a first. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Always good conversation and good information for our listeners. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR, I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on the ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.